Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place through scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter here on Substack throughout the week for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and around the world. Here at Faster Please, I write a lot about the need for optimistic, inspiring science fiction. Frequently, I'll ask my podcast or five quick question guests to point to an example of that kind of science fiction. And perhaps no film, book, or TV show gets held up as the standard for sci-fi more than Star Trek. To learn a bit more about the history of the franchise and discuss its future optimism and cultural importance, I'm speaking with Ryan Britt. Ryan is the author of the new book, Phasers on Stun, How the Making and Remaking of Star Trek Changed the World. Previously, he wrote, Luke Skywalker Can't Read and Other Geeky Truths. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. When originally broadcast, Star Trek did not have great ratings. Obviously, it's you know become an institution since then. Why didn't it do better when it was first on uh, on on regular television back in the sixties? Well, it's a little bit of a matter of debate. One of the people that I interviewed for my book, uh, Mark Cushman, did these uh, kind of deep dives into the ratings um, for his books, which were these very very in depth books called "These Are the Voyages," and his contention is that if you look at it by today's standards, you know, like five ten million people, yeah is a lot. And now we have all these streaming services that, you know, target these niche audiences and stuff like that. It would no longer be considered uh, a failure. But at the time, you only had three networks. You had NBC, CBS, and ABC. And Star Trek was on NBC. Um, And it didn't compete in the way that NBC wanted it to long term. That said, it had a very strong start. And Lucille Ball, who ran Desilu Studios, um, that produced Star Trek, um, send a congratulatory note. Um, Lucille Ball sent a note of congratulations to Gene Roddenberry when it started, saying that we're off to a great start. Uh, so, you know, it it was just the time. At the time, it wasn't enough, right? But um, the flip side of that is we forget that uh, Star Trek introduced mainstream American television audiences to all this. Uh, stuff in science fiction that they had no exposure to before. Um, you know, so <laughs> on the one hand, 5, 10 million people, 20 million people might not seem a, like a lot compared to today's viewership, but back then it was a huge explosion. When talking about the original series, we're going to talk about some of the other incarnations as well. Uh, people often will say, well, that was a, um, it was really a piece of its time with its sort of new frontier spirit. You had the Cold War analogies between uh, the Federation and the Klingons. You could even look at Captain Kirk as kind of a, a John F. Kennedy yeah. kind of kind of character. Those are really things of the early 60s. And granted, mm-hmm. you know, it's the same decade, late 60s, but there's a big difference between the America of sort of 1960, 61, 62, then getting into sort of the, you know, you know, the heart of the Vietnam era, civil rights, the late 1960s. But by the time the show aired, I wonder if you think that had a role that it already by that time, it seemed maybe out of step with the America uh, of that era. Yeah, I think that it's funny because science fiction in general, this is true of all 
science fiction, whether it's print or film, it always is like oddly a little behind, you know? And so like Star Trek was taking these, uh, this imagery that you would see on the covers of pulp science fiction magazines from two decades prior. Right. So like the way in which like the, it kind of looks reminds you of old issues of astounding or amazing stories and right. things like that. But its sensibilities were coming from these 60s writers who were part of what was called the new wave, like people like Harlan Ellison and Norman Spinrad. And they were kind of people that were pushing back against those kind of more conservative science fiction print traditions. So you've got this collision. And in the book, I talk about how, you know, like the uh, the oldest person that wrote for the original Star Trek was born in like the 1900s, right? <laughs> you know, because of the time it was made. But then the youngest person was like born in the 40s. You know what I mean? Who was like a uh, David Gerald who was like writing for the original series. So I think you have a lot of collision of generational viewpoints in the original series. You have really young writers and really old writers and Roddenberry's somewhere in between. He's in his 40s um, when this is all happening and he's had a big television career before that. Um, so yeah, I think that Star Trek is a lot of different generational styles and sensibilities happening at once. And I think that's also true of the later shows. And so it's like the cliche goes, it's not a bug. It's a feature, right? right? Like, like maybe that's why it's good is because there's these different competing ideologies. But I do think that it may mean that the original series has a little bit of a muddled message sometimes for a contemporary viewer. I was I, I started re doing kind of a rewatch not so long ago. So, of course, I started with the original, you know, pilot to not have William Shatner and that original sort of pilot has been, you know, was criticized, I think, including from the network as too cerebral. It's a little, you know, it was a little chilly. And it kind of reminded me more of kind of late 60s science fiction, something like 2001, which is also very kind of a chilly, very cerebral. And then uh, the Star Trek we know was different. They, they added, uh, you know, William Shatner. They had a captain who hit something. I think that I think that was one of the notes from the studio. We want, want there to be fistfights. If we had stuck with sort of that that original feeling from the very first pilot episode, I wonder if that would have made a difference. The show would have been more popular, less popular. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things going on in there, and you're right about everything you just said. But Roddenberry also wanted fistfights. That's the thing that people forget <laughs> is that Roddenberry sort of cast himself as this person who was uh, a pacifist and you know didn't want a lot of conflict. By the time the Next Generation happened in '87, but in the original series, Roddenberry came from writing westerns. He wrote Have Gun, Will Travel. Like he came from writing those fisticuffs. So he wanted his morality tales in an action adventure show. The way Roddenberry talked about Star Trek to the fans is not the way Roddenberry talked about Star Trek to the writers and the producers. He sold it as an action adventure show. There is nothing in the series Bible that says anything about it being a progressive, uh, you know, politically peacemaking show. There is nothing. And many of the writers who I spoke to who are still alive, like Judy Burns, who wrote the Tholian Web, she's like, there's nothing in the writer's Bible that is the Star Trek that we know today. It was an action adventure show. It was a Western in space. To your direct question, had the cage with Jeffrey Hunter and and the, the sort of the, the mind experiments with the Tolosans and all that kind of philosophy. Uh, no, that show would not have worked. Um, it's great that we have Anson Mount and Rebecca Romaine doing this kind of rebooted version now on Strange New Worlds of Captain Pike and those characters. But no, that 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 episode is great as a thought experiment, but. You know, it's not very diverse, for one thing. There's no Sulu. There's no Uhura. There's no Scotty. These characters aren't that fun. Uh, Jeffrey Hunter's Captain Pike is depressed. Yes. He's talking about quitting in the first episode. And yeah, to your point, it does feel a little bit closer to the kind of late 60s sci-fi movies 
but it's also closer in tone to what was in print science fiction, right? Like a kind of uh, sort of cranky white guy hero who sort of has to fix something. Whereas when they got Kirk, you know, they needed Kirk. They needed Shatner. The show needed that. Um, The show needed the diversity. It needed Uhura and Sulu. Um, It needed Scotty. Um, It needed Bones. Um, You know, Boyce, who's the doctor uh, in um, The Cage, is funny, but he's not Bones. I mean, when you watch the Corbomite maneuver, which was the first episode they filmed of the original series with the regular cast, after Where No Man Has Gone Before, the first scene, Bones is, you know, saying, what am I, a doctor or a moon shuttle conductor? And he's hilarious, and Kirk's got his shirt off, and he's working out, and Spock's saying something's fascinating. It's great. You don't have that in the case. So, no, I don't think it would have connected with people because the characters weren't as, um, for lack of a better word, they weren't as romantic and fun as right. the, as they became. Uh, let me read uh, something my, uh, my friend, the journalist Virginia Postrel, recently wrote about uh, Star Trek. Star Trek's fundamental appeal was not about the future or technology per se. The show portrays a setting in which smart people have new experiences and learn new things, solve important problems, and forge deep friendships. Nobody worries about money or off its politics. The the show's values are humane. Everyone's job is important and the boss deserves respect. Um, For many of its fans, Star Trek represents an ideal workplace. Its vision of a nerd-friendly universe made the future glamorous, but only to the select few for whom that vision resonated. And I believe her point was, uh, and also to your point, that that kind of nerd-friendly universe uh, may not have resonated enough when there's only three channels. Um, but. Yeah. Uh, it certainly would ha- would resonate if if we had you know today's streaming services. Her general point that it's not about the future or technology; it's about something else that gets to its enduring popularity. Yeah, I think that something that also gets left out a little bit, which is a little bit more fundamental and perhaps um, sounds kind of boring when you say it, but there had never been a science fiction program for adults with reoccurring characters. Ever. Doctor Who debuted in 1963, but it was a family show. Lost in Space debuted in 1965, but it was a family show. The Outer Limits, uh, uh, Twilight Zone, these were anthology shows. And they were also off the air by the time it was 1964. So just the idea that if you were interested in, as you say, this kind of setting, um, or as Virginia says, that a, a setting a science fiction setting that allows for all this, there were just no characters to latch onto for a TV audience. So I think that that is part of it is just that it was novel. And I think that th- that this is something people forget because now there's a million science fiction right. shows and there are a dime a dozen, but it's like that was novel at the time. Uh, Norman Spinrad, who wrote The Doomsday Machine, who I interviewed for the book, was like, this was like for science fiction when Dylan went electric. Like it brought these things out to a bunch of people and science fiction before that is kind of like folk music. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, I think it was geek friendly or nerd friendly or whatever. But I think what, what people forget is that relative to the rest of science fiction, Star Trek is ridiculously mainstream. Um, and it only was in the seventies where Star Trek suddenly became niche relative to Star Wars you know, and that's only because George Lucas actually said, and he's quoted in the book saying this, is like Star Trek made that possible. It proved that you could do big mainstream, you know, um, science fiction for adults and for everybody. And if you had the right sort of zip to it, and he wasn't talking about philosophy or science, you know. Right. <laughs> so I think that that's the impact, too, is just that just the idea that science fiction became mainstream is because of Star Trek. 
I, I would like to think that sort of the during popularity and the various other incarnations and spinoffs have something in common, which is, I, I guess, superficially, you could say optimism, but more really the idea that, uh, you know, the future is not going to be perfect is this is not a show about a utopia, though maybe it seems like utopia compared to where we are right now, but it's a, it's a world where there's still problems, but we can solve those problems and maybe how we solve those problems could create more problems. Then we'll solve those. But again, I like to think that the popularity is really about, again, not just that, yes, tomorrow will be better, but it can be, it'll be better because we can fix it and just keep solving one problem after another until things get better. Yeah. You know, I've been watching a lot of Star Trek, the animated series with my five and a half year old, um, this 1973 animated series, which is really interesting because I did watch a bunch of it while I was writing the book in, in 2020 and 2021, but now she's even older. And so now we have like a Star Trek night and we watch the animated series together and something, and my daughter is already hip to how this works when the conflicts are introduced in an episode of Star Trek, the animated series, or a few of the episodes of the original series that we've watched. She always knows she'll turn to me and be like, but they're going to become friends with it in the end. You know what I mean? Like where there's the there's a giant cloud that's going to envelop this planet in this animated series episode called "What One of Our Planets Are Is Missing." Sounds exactly like the plot of the motion picture because it is. Um, <laughs> and but she goes, and my wife was overhearing the dialogue. She's like, "Oh my god, this sounds terrible. They're gonna the, all these people on this planet are gonna die." And my daughter calls to my wife from the kitchen. She goes, "Spock's gonna talk to it and make it nice." And I think that that's the thing, right? Is that there's there's always an understanding, and even a five year old can pick up on the pattern of Star Trek. This looks like a monster. It's not a monster. This looks like a bad person. They can come to an understanding with it. And there's not a lot of action adventure shows from the 60s or now really that are like that. You know, in general, I was making a joke that in 2020 you had a debut of The Mandalorian, which I love, season 2 and Star Trek Discovery season 3 within a week of each other, two weeks of each other, something like that. Both episodes had characters fighting against what was kind of a giant space worm creature and in the mandalorian they just blow it up they just kill it they put bombs in it they blow it up from the inside and in the discovery episode the character uh cleveland booker played by david ajala literally like is empathizes with it and calms it down and that's the difference that's the difference between star trek and almost everything else except for maybe doctor who i think it's important that we have sort of optimistic, problem-solving kinds of uh, science fiction. And also I'll ask some guests, can you give me an example of something that you watch that you think meets those criteria? And then I finally had to say, other than Star Trek, because I kept getting Star Trek as the same answer. Doctor Who. Doctor Who would, be, uh, would also be an excellent answer. Why isn't there more? If You know, you mentioned Doctor Who and Star Trek, two long-running, successful franchises. Why is there so? are there so few... So few examples of that, while there's a lot more of, uh, you know, apocalyptic zombies were doomed in the end that aren't problem solving and you could say optimistic. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, there that, that's an interesting question. I, I, I think that sometimes I actually am like surprised that even we have Star Trek and Doctor Who. <laughs> I'm like, sometimes I go in the opposite direction where I'm like, I'm, we're so lucky to even have these things. I just did a big essay on like early Sherlock Holmes stories the other uh, couple weeks back for Esquire. And something that I always like pointing out to people that might not read Sherlock Holmes is that like most of them aren't murders. You know what I mean? Like most of the good stories are not murder mysteries. They're kind of something else. They're, and Sherlock Holmes is another kind of interesting example of like a 
a sort of really ethical but flawed person who's always kind of and again he's always trying to see like oh maybe this person's not the villain maybe it's the other way around you know what i mean um and of course sherlock holmes has influences on star trek because of nicholas meyer who directed the wrath of khan and because of michael shabone who's creator of uh, star trek picard but i mean and many other sherlock holmes connections uh to star trek spock in particular but um yeah why are there not more i suppose it's just because it's easier to write conflict i mean i don't know i I haven't written a lot of fiction um and it is you have to have conflict in fiction and it is easier to have just you know james bond or something which is something i know a lot about i know a lot about bond even those books though he doesn't have a gun as often as you might think um (laughs) not as much as he does in the movies um but uh i think it's just when it comes to adventure fiction violence is embedded into that Right. And and that's why, whether it's the Western or whether it's a detective story or something like that. And so when you don't do that, when you make like with Star Trek, they make a choice. The phasers have a stun setting with Doctor Who. They made a choice. They're like, he doesn't have a gun. And when the doctor does have a gun, it's a big deal. And the same thing with Star Trek, you know, Kirk in the are in, in Taste of Armageddon. I will not kill today. You know, like, uh, you know, so I, I they, they make it they have to make it as part of the storytelling to almost subvert the rest of adventure fiction in a way. I'm a fan of The Expanse. And uh, there, there, there's a there's a great scene. I, I, I forget if it's also in the book. I know it's for sure in the TV series where it looks like there's going to be a, a war and fighting is going to break out. And the uh, uh, the main character, um, Holden, says, let's try something else. So to me, Star Trek is everybody constantly thinking, can we try something else other than blowing something up? Well, The Expanse is great. And then, and that, and of course, the showrunner of The Expanse is Nareen Shankar, who worked on The Next Generation in Deep Space Nine and was Ronald Moore's friend. And then you've got Ron Moore doing uh, For All Mankind, the Apple TV yes. series. And For All Mankind is another example we're like in the season two finale. I don't know for those of you. I mean, that's a couple of years ago now. Season two of For All Mankind, I'll spoil it, where Ed has the choice of whether or not he's going to blow up these uh, these Russian ships that are going to the moon. And he decides and Sally Ride's got a gun on him and they're like <laughs> and he decides not to. And, the, and then Danielle is can can abort this, the, the handshake in space with the Russians. And she quotes yeah. Captain Kirk and then she does the handshake. And that's Ron Moore's Star Trek optimism coming through this alternate history sci-fi show so i think a for all mankind i think is a good one that's a good example of of those star trek ish ideals sort of working out in in like what's basically a prestige drama which is basically mad men with nasa you know what i mean and that's hard to do to make that upbeat you know that's a dark show but it has a lot of optimism in it we also sort of one of my you know one of my little ideas here is that that is that it's like it's important it's important that some that at least some slice or sliver of our science fiction be optimistic and problem solving and and i and you can point to like you know uh, tech you know silicon valley people say they were inspired by star trek but do you think just more broadly that it's important to have that kind of science fiction showing a, a future worth making and a future worth living in or you know is it just science is it just science fiction i think that it's also like important that the stories are contemplative in a very specific way right like i love star wars but there's not a lot of different kind of star wars stories it's generally a hero's journey good versus evil which is fine and not negative right and 
and they're kind of unpacking that a bit with the Andor show and trying to be like, okay, but what would it, if you were a member of the rebellion, would you kind of be a terrorist? And that's an interesting sort of moral experiment, which is subversive, but it's only subversive for Star Wars, right? Because Star Wars has always been very black and white um, for the most part. You know what I mean? And the morality plays don't have a lot of variety. Um, you know, I'm working on a book about Dune right now, and Dune is very moral and ethical in its considerations. It's just kind of like things didn't go well. Like, so the, the purpose of that storytelling is like, here's when it doesn't go well. And here's, you know, the various intricacies of why and then how that's connected to politics and ecology. It's it's not dark for the sake of being dark. I would say that something like Westworld to me is kind of dark for the sake of being dark. And I, I, don't, I don't hate Westworld or anything like that. I always end up on podcasts being like Westworld. Um, <laughs> but um, I do think that there tends to be a little bit of a one notism there. And even aspects of like the Battlestar reboot would sometimes go that direction of like, wow, aren't people messed up? And then you'd kind of be like, yeah, but where's the hope in there? Where's the, you know, um, I think something that kind of strikes that balance of it is the new foundation show mm. is a little interesting. Like, yeah. I think that that's another Apple show. Um, but I think that strikes a little bit of an interesting balance. I just think that it has to be the ideas have to be unpacked in a way because I think you can go too sugarcoated, right? And I think that at Star Trek, at maybe its worst moments or maybe its less uh, potent moments would be a little too on the nose, right? Okay. So, you know, that, that's what I would say, yeah. Of the more recent Star Trek, that for some reason, the new one, Strange New Worlds, which is a, a riff on the original The Cage, as you mentioned earlier, that, that, that people seem to have like connected with that. They, I keep seeing versions of, well, that's finally real Trek. Do you know what people mean that? I mean, is that your in, impression? Well, I don't know if they, I don't know if they mean yeah. that it's optimistic or it's or well, what, what exactly. It, it, it definitely is a little bit more upbeat, but it's also like it's also like Strange New Worlds is also like still like significantly darker than the next generation. You know what I mean? It's just kind of everything's kind of relative. I think that I'm a pretty big, you know, supporter of all the new shows. Um, Discovery, Picard, I'm talking to the Lower Decks showrunner, Mike McMahon, in about an hour today. And I love him. And I love that show is actually very upbeat and funny and talks about the workplace aspect of it that you that you were talking about. Um, but I think that what people are responding to and Strange New Worlds objectively has better reviews, right? It had like 100% or 98% of Rotten Tomatoes for a while. So it's like you can't. You can't argue with the reviews. They exist. And the reviews were more mixed for some of the other shows. Um, I think it's about the format, frankly. I think that the serialization of Discovery and Picard was emulating the prestige style of other shows. Mm. The Expanse, uh, Breaking Bad, Battlestar, Sopranos, or whatever. And I don't know if that's the best way to do Star Trek. Deep Space Nine had a lot of serialization, and that was very risky yeah. at the time. Uh, particularly in the 90s. Um, but it's not like you want to randomly watch one episode of that arc in Deep Space Nine of the Dominion War. You suddenly have to watch like two seasons. If you're going to watch like one episode of Deep Space Nine, it'll be a standalone episode. If you're going to watch one episode of The Next Generation, it'll be a standalone episode or a two-parter. The original series, the same. Enterprise, even Voyager. You know, so serialization, I, t I think, tends to not age as well. Um even Battlestar, which is brilliant. Like, it's not like I want, I could watch just one episode of the 2004 Battlestar. I have to like watch all of it. Strange New Worlds are standalone episodes for the most part. And I think that is what's connecting with people is that you can sit there and you can go, I just watched Spock Amok, which is the fifth episode again for like the fourth time the other day. And it's great. It's this great body switch episode with Spock and T'Pring. You know, Ethan Peck is hilarious and it's yeah, great. It's excellent. All right. Yeah. But I think that's what, to me, that is the, the main thing about it. And the tone sort of if you want to if 
if you want to knock Discovery and Picard for being dark, if you actually watch those and you actually see what those shows are about, it's not really true. Those shows are about optimism, about hope. The conflicts are just a little rowdier. Um, but those shows are not about that. You know what I mean? Like those shows are about those redemptions. They just take longer. Um, whereas in Strange New Worlds, it's kind of a given, you know, that it's kind of like some of that optimism was kind of a given in a way that was also true of like the next generation. So I think that's the difference. Yeah. I did also ask Ronald D. Moore this question. It's uh, it's the it's the Peter Thiel question. Star Trek is the uh, communist show. <laughs> Star Wars is the capitalist show. What, what, I want to get your opinion on that. What kind of what do you think of that characterization? Does that actually capture? Is that actually an insight or? I don't know. I think it's a little reductive. I mean, I think that I think it's a bit reductive. I think that Star. You could also flip it. You could just flip it around, and you could you could easily just make the other argument. I'm not saying I agree with either viewpoint, but you could easily be like, no, Star Wars the communist show because the rebels want to dismantle capitalism, or or something. You know what I mean? Um, and the empire is capitalistic and you could be like Star, you know, you know, so that's the communist show and Star Trek's capitalistic because the Federation has a monopoly, you know, and they just don't have money within their own government. But they they screw over these other planets economically, which we know is true. And it, and Star Trek has criticized itself about like in Discovery season three. Uh, the Orions are like, you guys still have capitalism. You just don't have it in your own space. And then in, in Strange New World season one, Pike goes to this planet where they're like, hey, you guys still trade with us. You know, so you, you can make, I think it's just, it, it's one of those, it sounds like a dorm room argument to me. <laughs> you know, like it doesn't seem that deep to me. I know there's a lot of folks who are like progressive socialists that are like Star Trek has got all these great examples of like how communism could work in the future. And it's not, it's not really my deal. I'm like a social, I'm like a, I'm like a pop culture critic who thinks about how Star Trek affects art and culture now. People have written books about the economy and Star Trek and stuff like that. Right. And I find it to be a little bit like, it's not really my bag, <laughs> is what I'll say. Sometimes I like to guess if the title of the book was the one the author really wanted or the book publisher suggested that. I'm, I'm wondering if the title of your book, In Your Heart, which should have been like Live Long and Prosper rather than Phasers on Stun. Or, 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 or was this your preference? Well, you know, I had a lot of different titles. The subtitle was mine, always. How the making and remaking of Star Trek changed the world. That was the subtitle. That was completely mine. And my agent was like, that's a winner. That's the subtitle. We always knew, because I, I really liked the idea of saying that it wasn't just the making of Star Trek, but the remaking. And that, it, that the book was about metamorphosis. We wanted then a catchphrase. I had pushed for Spock lives, like, <laughs> or Spock rocks for a long time. Right. Um, and then we ended up having Spock on the cover. So I got that. Um, but... um. I was on the fence about phasers on stun, but then I interviewed Walter Koenig, who played Chekhov, of course, for a long time, not long after the January 6th thing. And Walter was so nice and thoughtful about everything um, and conflicts in society and how to think and unpack all of them from all sides of the political spectrum and wasn't reductive and just a smart guy. And I mentioned to him the working title at that time. He goes, I love that. He's like, because it means we don't have to kill each other. And so after that, I was like, well, it's good enough for Chekhov. <laughs> good enough for me <laughs> ryan thanks for coming on i appreciate it i had a great time thank you 